You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Hey, turn your Bibles to Malachi. Chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. How's it? You guys doing all right? Wow, Really? <laughs> Okay, uh, I know it was 4th of July last night. Hopefully you have all your limbs connected to your body still, hopefully, and you didn't burn yourself too bad for those of you who are wild with fire. You just love being as dangerous as you possibly can be with fire. Uh, I get it, I get it, but we're, hey, we're glad that you're here. Um, want to invite all of you out next week to church on Sunday. We are having our services as usual, 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., but we also want to uh, really encourage you to come out because next week is our three-year birthday uh, as a church, which is really exciting. And so um, it's really neat to see what's happened in three years. We have three candles on our birthday cake, which means we're very much still dysfunctional, but very much alive and maturing and growing. And so we're moving out of that church planning stage, moving into really being more of an established church, which we are so thankful for that. And uh, it's going to be a great time of us looking back at what God has really done in the last year, last three years, and then, of course, where God has us going in the years to come. We truly, honestly believe that what is in front of us is the best that is yet to come for our church. Uh, my name's Travis, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We are honored to have you and humbled that you've taken your Sunday morning to be here with us. Um, it's a privilege to be able to, to teach you the Word of God, and that's my main responsibility is I'm the teaching pastor here at the church, and, and today uh, is really um, going to be one of those, those Sundays that, that I've been praying for you. We have been praying for you. This is not uh, the easiest, really, sermon that, that we've gone through. The sermon series, let alone this message in particular, is, uh, is fun. It's really challenging. So, um, and that's because the spiritual state of Israel here in Malachi is really crumbling before their eyes, but it's not as though Israel is, is kind of watching this innocently just fall before them, but they are caught red-handed joining in the action of really cheating God in worship in all different areas of life. They've been questioning God's love, ignoring his majesty, they have not been, not been honoring God as their father and deaf to his words that he has been speaking to him, to them with plugged ears and as a result of their ears being plugged and shut to the words of God, their hearts have been hardened. And through Malachi's boldness, God tells them, I will, if you will not listen and if you will not take these things to heart, uh, I will spread dung on your faces. <laughs> And uh, that was last week's message. If you're like, spread dung on your faces, just listen to last week's message. It's online. It was really interesting. Uh, yes, God says, I'm going to smear poop in the faces of the ministers, uh, those priests in Israel. And uh, it was offensive then, just as it's offensive now. Some of you are like, did he just say poop? Yes, I did. Because uh, God did. So uh, I don't apologize, but if you've lost your appetite, that I do apologize for. So you could say in Malachi, the... The leadership crisis is alive and well. And that's true for our verses this morning. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. 
We're going to pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob and any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groanings because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you vow, or but you say, why has he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And was the one God, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Heavenly Father, this is your word. These are your words. The word of the Lord is quick and sharp, dividing the joints and the marrows of our own soul, cutting out what does not belong, renewing what is there that glorifies you. And so God, as we take this time to, to be in your word and to study the scriptures, we acknowledge as your church that we are not perfect, that none of us in here stand on a on morality and on a righteousness of our own, that none of us are better than another because by your grace, we boldly approach your throne. It's nothing we can boast in, but we freely enjoy the gift of your son, Jesus. And if there are those in here this morning that do not know you, Jesus, that do not have a relationship with you, Jesus, that through this interesting, difficult, and burdened text that we would come to faith in you. And for those of us, God, who are struggling, who have broken relationships, God, we, we carry so much baggage in here this morning. God, we believe that you are a father to the fatherless, that you are near to the brokenhearted. And it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so may your kindness through even the heaviness of your word draw us in. And may I be faithful to the scriptures, God. May it not be what I have to say, God, but what you have to say through the scriptures. May our ears be attentive and our hearts be receptive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 You can be seated. In the Bible, you never really have to get too far with reading 
about the commands you have to do, but then you not being reminded about who you are. Whenever you read a command of God, almost always guaranteed is somewhere close nearby, God reminding you of who he is and who you are. And there's a danger when you and I read the Bible that that we get too far ahead of God or too far behind God and we see all the things that we are to do for God, but we miss out on what God has done for us and who we are in light of him. We don't want to run ahead or behind of the reality of who God is and who we are. And so we're refreshed by this truth in verse 10. At least the listeners are in, in Malachi's day. Have we not all one father? And as that one God created us, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It's very interesting what what this prophet Malachi does here. That instead of just like dropping these bombs of truth and making it much harder for them to hear, he says, have we not one father Has not God created us? In other words, yes, you're unfaithless. Yes, these are things you should be doing. And here's what you're doing, but you shouldn't be doing. And before he gets into all the details of what they should be doing and not be doing, he reminds them of who he is. And God says to them through the prophet Malachi, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Israel, do you not tremble that I've created you? Have you not been shaken to the core again that I am glorious and that you are not? And that you are sinful and then I am great and holy? I am one father. I made you in my image. I have created you and you are a child of God and is God not your father? We know that God is their father, right? God is their father and God has declared his love for them. In fact, that Malachi is a book. It's a burden, but the, the banner over the burden of this whole book is the love of God for his people. I have loved you, declares the Lord. So he says, have we not all one father? Is God not our father and are we not his children? So the answer, rhetorical, yes, of course. Yeah. So then he asks, why are we faithless to one another? Why do you give your word and not follow through? Why, why are you not keeping your covenants? Why are you not treating one another as you, you said you should be, you ought to be? See, it's because you've forgotten Israel, whose you are, you don't do what's right, and this is sin, and this is true for us today. When we forget... When we forget whose we are, we don't do what we should, and the result of us not doing what we ought to do means we don't do what, we sh- what we're commanded against the Bible to not be doing, and that is a result of sin. And so fragmented earthly relationships are the broke of a relationship with God. Fragmented earthly relationships are the result of a broken relationship with God. So maybe your boyfriend, maybe your girlfriend, maybe your spouse, maybe your friends, maybe your coworkers. There's something that it's misfiring. It's not what it once was. It started off great. It kind of fizzled out. What happened there? At the end of the day, if it has to do with unfaithfulness, it's because there is a lack of honor, forgetting that God created them. And the result of that is faithlessness to one another. 
So when we ignore God as our father, we do not live as his children. And see here, God is lovingly, graciously, bluntly reminding them of their identity in God, their identity as God having them as their father, which was unique to Israel because no other nation could have that identity. No other nation did have that identity. And now he reveals where they have gone wrong. Where where have they been faithless specifically? Well, if you look at verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, it's a famously quote from the movie Princess Bride. Mailwage, you guys, no, no one knows that movie? You're gonna leave me up here alone? All right, one person knows that movie. Thank you, one person who knows that movie. Okay, a few of you, right? You know that, that priest, the bishop who gets up, marriage is what brings us together today, right? Um, marriage is what brings up today's discussion in the prophet, through the prophet Malachi. The burden that is on the heart of the Lord and on the prophet Malachi is the burden that is dropped upon us in reading the book of Malachi. And what causes us, what, what the thing that we are going to discuss and look at today rather is marriage. And if Malachi has really yet to get under the skins of its listeners, these next two truths that we will discuss probably will. Um, the burden of Malachi are the marriages in Israel. Malachi's first going to deal with marriage to unbelievers. And then the second anvil that is dropped will deal with unfaithfulness in those who were once married. These waters that we sail on are emotionally turbulent. I know that. So I don't take this lightly as we move into the subject. And I ask that if you've sat in here, that you would hear the entirety of this message so you don't walk away with with a misperception or just check out because certain things that might be stereotypes of what we believe. But on June 26th of this year, the Supreme Court made a monumental decision to give same-sex couples right in marriage. And listen, um, we are so thankful if you are here this morning and you are in bondage to sin and you struggle with uh, same-sex attraction or if you are in a same-sex relationship this morning, hear me on this. We are so thankful that you are with us. We are thankful that you are here joining us and Um, you are never outside of God's reach of his saving grace, just like the rest of us. We love you. We care for you. We are so thankful for you because again, we are all in need. We are all sinners in need of God's grace, no matter where you fall in the categories of sin. And as someone dedicated to God's word, when culture takes something that God instituted and then redefines it. What I don't want to do is argue within the cultural narrative, but I want us to get above the fog and to submit ourselves under the authority of scriptures to see what God would have to say about what marriage is. 
What do the scriptures and what does Malachi refer to in verse 11 when he is talking about marriage, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God? What does Malachi mean? What does the Bible mean when it talks about marriage? We have to look no further than the genesis of all creation to figure out what God's plan is for marriage. To look at the first marriage. Now we know in creation, God created all things, all things he created good. And he spoke things into existence that were not there and they were there. Understand that. I don't get it either. It's amazing that God can do that. It's not there and then he speaks it and it's there miraculously. And as he creates all these things and the creation plan unfolds, he looks at everything he creates and said, it's good. What I have made is good, which is an understatement, right? God rarely uh, uses words that uh, are, I mean, they mean what they mean, right? It's good. And so no doubt it was good, but he said the first thing in creation is good, not good that when I created man, I, man is alone. And so it's not good that man be alone. So let me make a helper comparable to him. And so God creates man in his image. And then God creates woman in his image. And before they are sexually intimate and before they are in relationship with one another, man was made in the image of God. Woman was made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. So being that we are in the image of God, it means that man is not greater than woman. Woman is not greater than man. We are both co-image bearers of God. Equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in worth. Though our roles may be slightly different before an almighty God, we are equally loved, equally cared for, equally created by him. And then God brings the woman to the man. And that is such a beautiful, God is officiating the first wedding that takes place. And it's in Genesis chapter two and verse 24, God says that, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So this is now in here, God defining what marriage is. It's not me defining marriage and it's not you defining marriage. God defines marriage in Genesis 2, 24 at the first wedding as one man, one woman for one life. The Supreme Court has not just given rights to same-sex couples to marry, but what they have done fundamentally, or at least attempted to do, is actually change the definition of marriage. Now, they won't say that, but that's what they've done. And the Bible is unequivocal that marriage is between one man and one woman. Even in our verse here, in case you thought, well, maybe the evolution of scriptures and as societies become more advanced, we've realized these things. No, no, because even in Malachi, we read in verse 11, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married he, the daughters of a foreign God. So you have Judah, men wearing, ma marrying women of a foreign God. That marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, Know this, it's not because straight people are better. Because while marriage is between a man and a woman, this doesn't mean that God even approves of many heterosexual marriages, let alone homosexual marriages. Look, look at verse 11. 
You know, like the, the discussion today is marriage equality. Guys, if we're fighting for equality as Christians, we don't want what's fair. We deserve hell, right? We don't want fairness. Even for Christians, there is not marriage equality. For God's people, there is not marriage equality. Look at verse 11. For Judah, now, now who, who is Judah? This is speaking, there's 12 tribes of Israel. These are God's chosen, God's loved people. And Judah is really one of the two tribes of Israel that become more pronounced. There's Benjamin and then there's uh, the tribe of Benjamin and there's the tribe of Judah. Uh, Judah, these were the group of people who not all people returned back to Israel after their captivity. But in the book of Malachi, we see uh, the tribe of Judah, many of them returning back to their homeland in Israel. You see in Nehemiah, the rebuilding of their nation. This is speaking of Judah. They were there. They were one of the 12 tribes who did return after captivity. Judah has been faithless. And faithless is speaking of they just lack an honor to one another in relationships and marriage. In fact, as we talk about marriage for the rest of these verses, faithlessness is woven five times throughout all these things. Judah has been faithless in a lack of honor and an abomination has been committed in Israel. Now an abomination here, this is speaking of about idolatry of worship and sexual sin. Why then is Judah a faithless abomination before the Lord? Because they have married the daughters of a foreign God. And in marrying the daughters of a foreign God, their behavior has graffitied the holiness of God's sanctuary. So the daughter of a foreign goddess is talking about marrying a woman who is still committed to a foreign god, who is an idolater, a person who is outside of God's covenant people. So these people were actively married, marrying people who were not once former idolaters and worshipers, but who were actively worshiping a different God, small God, God's plural, and these people were idolaters, and, and Judah was going off and marrying these women, and this is an abomination to the Lord, because why would a soul of a believer mingle with the soul in disbelief? A believer should not marry an unbeliever. And to do so is to love that person more than God. Now, I know that's kind of harsh. No, but I, I love God, but, but, but what? That you really want to be with them? You, you really want to have a relationship with them? I mean, yeah, but, but we're, I mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I know how. You care about pleasing that person more than you do about pleasing God. And in so doing so, you're walking in, in disobedience. And your disobedience is evident that you are an idolater, that you do not worship God because to love anything or anyone more than God is idolatry. Now you might be saying, yeah, but, but Travis, I'm trying this thing called missionary dating, right? Now let me just say 99% of the time that never ends well. I mean, seriously, it never ends well. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm gonna make them better and when we get married, everything will get better. So here's the thing. In marriage, one plus one equals one. Yes and amen. But when you get one sinner in a room in a covenant relationship with another sinner in a room with a covenant relationship, you don't have less sin. 
One plus one is two. You have twice the sin that you do. And so the things that you love about them, you will like more probably in marriage. And the things that you dislike about them will be all the more amplified in marriage. And so let me just say, if you're kind of the missionary dating type of a person, let's drop the word dating. Let's be a missionary. Let them be saved by the grace of Jesus. And then you can start dating them and get married. Okay. How about that? And now God, again, going back to verse 10, he says, have we not one father? Malachi says, has not one God created us? In other words, well, I don't know if I like that because, because, I mean, you're telling me how to live my life. Actually, yeah, God is telling you how to live your life. He is, one, he is the God. He is our father. He is creator of all things. And he has every right to tell you and to me how we live and how we should marry. He made up what marriage is. He makes the rules. And this idea of marrying an unbeliever does not just resonate in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Non-believer can marry a non-believer, yes or no? Yes, non-believer can marry a non-believer. Can a believer marry a believer? Absolutely. Can a believer marry a non-believer? No. Yes, but I love them and I love him. You didn't know we have such a special relationship. It's better than a lot of the Christian marriages I've seen. Now, Judah, do you think they would say anything less than that? Like the dudes in Judah are like, have you checked out the girls of the daughters of foreign gods, Right? Have you seen them? They're exotic. They look different than the women do here in, in Jerusalem. So we're just going to go out. There. No, of course they love them. No one was forcing them to go out and marry these daughters of foreign gods. They were willfully excited to go and get themselves an exotic woman. They were. But here, God does not approve of all marriages. God does not approve of their marriages and so when it comes to same-sex marriages or any unbiblical marriage, for that matter, or will be, to become biblical marriage, this is not about winning an argument. But it's about winning souls to Jesus. I do not want this church and, and us as Christians to be known for, yeah, have you seen their comments on Facebook? Have you seen the way they attack? How about we love people and share with them the gospel instead of trying to trim all their sin? Sexual sin is a sin of idolatry. Yes and amen, but it is not the worst sin. The worst sin is not homosexuality. The worst sin is not adultery. The worst sin is not fornication. The worst sin is are not any other wicked sexual deviances or fantasies, which yes, just so you know, all those sins are abomination to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus 20, uh, Romans chapter 1, Revelation 21, and other verses. Those though, yes, are a bad sin and they are abominations before the Lord, but they are not the worst sin. The worst sin is the sin of unbelief. Failing to trust God with all of your life, including your sexuality. And Israel and Judah, they were guilty of this very thing. So verse 12, we, we read the, what happens because they've married the daughters of 
foreign gods. The Lord says, May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob. Any descendant of the man who does this, even the children that they're going to have, they're cut off from the covenant relationship with God. They're, they're no longer, even their tents that are set in Jerusalem will be cut off. Of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now what's crazy is these guys have willfully gone against God. They're married to women who are not worshiping God and they're still trying to worship God. And God's like, I'm, no, I don't want your worship. Your worship's not even real. It's living for your own glory, living for your own pleasure, trying to pursue your own happiness, and they're happily ever after, God says, will be cut off. Now, hear me right now. If you, I, I need you guys to hear me on this. If you are unmarried right now, please hear my voice. If you are in a relationship with an unbeliever, call it off. Do not marry an unbeliever. Your relationship with Jesus is truly more important than any other relationship. And if they truly love you, if this person you are interested in truly loves you, they will care about your spiritual well-being more than their own sexual satisfaction. And they will protect your faith. They will guard your faith. They will guard your relationship because they love you. And so if you are in a relationship or moving towards a relationship in marriage where that person does not care for your soul, drop them like it's hot. Yes, your pastor just told you to do that, right? Get rid of them. Please do not. And I can tell you there's story after story of people who know, but, but you don't understand. When I, when I marry them, things are going to get better. Things are going to change. No, they're not. Now you're stuck and it's going to be worse and you can't run away from them. It's too late. Please, please do not marry an unbeliever or someone who does not protect and guard your faith, but instead they harm it and they drag you down. Now, if you became a Christian after marriage, then it's totally different for you. This, doesn't, this does not apply because First Peter calls you to stay in the household and to serve them and that by your example, they would be saved and sanctified. So you have to endure, but you do it in a way so that they would see your example. They would come to know the Jesus that you love. It's the first burden of marriage. Second burden of marriage, verse 13. The second thing you do is you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So, the, so the, here's the people with crocodile tears like, all right, God, we're gonna worship you. And we're so sorry and here's our offerings. And, we're just, and God's like, well, you've grown, you, I've rejected you because you've shut your ears and you've hardened your hearts and now you're doing these crocodile tears and it almost seems as though they're sorry and they're being repentant. But God says at the end of verse 13, he says, or Malachi says, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from your hand. So they're bringing it before them and, and they're just crying and it looks like on the outward like a really great thing that's happening. I can remember uh, one of the churches that I was uh, a pastor at before uh, after the sermon was given, there was this, there was this young girl, they're crying, 
uh, in her seat. And so I walked in and said, hey, is everything okay? And I, I was thinking like maybe the gospel just transformed her. She, was, she got saved and just weeping in repentance. And she's like, my boyfriend broke up with me this morning. And I was like, okay, never mind then, right? Now I'm not trying to, not trying to put down the, 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 the pain of a breakup, but not tears of repentance. Tears of repentance and repentance alone is being sorry enough to have a change of heart and a change of direction. Though you once thought and lived this way, now you've turned your direction and you're living a different way. That is what repentance is. Sorry is just being sorry. And so Israel, they're not being sorry. They're covering the Lord's altar with tears, but listen, they're not tears of repentance. They want to go through the religious motions pretending as though in their mind's eye they're approved by God. But God's let them know, you guys, you're not fooling me. Why is he not fooling them? Why is God not paying any attention to their offerings now? Verse 14, but you say, this is Israel, why does he not? Their arrogance astonishes me. Not that I am any better of a person, but they're like, really God? Why have you not accepted our offerings? Talking back to God does not go end well for you if you do that. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. Their worship is not accepted before God because their marriages are falling apart. That they, they show up to do the religious activity, but their home is a mess, and God says, I'm not having it. And people who worship on Sunday, but I, listen, I'm not saying you can't be perfect, but people who worship on Sunday and their life is like hell throughout the week, is that not hypocrisy? I mean, our, our life, our Monday and our Tuesday should be reflective of what God does to us on a Sunday in our own devotional times as we grow in the word of God. We're not here just to, to, to shed our tears at the altar of the Lord and do our religious duty. We're here to worship God and to be transformed and that should take place in our marriages. And in the brokenness of their relationship, Malachi tells them the Lord was witness. What does he mean by the Lord was a witness? Well, God was there at the first wedding, right? We already talked about it, Genesis 2. God was there at the first wedding. Did you know that if you're married this morning, God was there at your wedding? He was there. In fact, when, when I often do, when, when, I, when I do weddings or uh, often the weddings that I've attended, you've been a part of, or you're in the wedding, after the vows are shared and the uh, husband and wife kiss, then at some point after the ceremonies, there, there is a signing of a marriage certificate. On the marriage certificate, there are two witnesses who sign it. Usually it's the, the best man and the bridesmaid, maid of honor, maid of honor. And so you have the maid of honor and the uh, best man sign that as a witness, they're saying we were there in person. And here the God of the universe is saying, Judah, I was there at the wedding. I signed the form. I put my stamp on it. I saw you get married. I saw your commitment. I saw the promise that you made. I heard your promise. I join you together. Don't pretend like you, you, you married this daughter and I didn't really know about it and I'm kind of oblivious to these things. I was a witness because God is a witness over marriage. So he says in verse 14, in the way, not only is God a witness of marriage, 
but the way he describes marriage is to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, marriage is not just a certificate. Marriage is companionship and friendship and your wife by covenant. Now I want you to circle, underline, mark that word covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Now, unless you made some up ridiculous fairy tale vows that you shared at your wedding, like, I'm your peanut butter, you're my jelly, let's get together and, you know, stupid stuff like that. I seriously hear the most ridiculous um, vows that have been exchanged. You probably said something along the lines, uh, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish for as long as we both shall live. And the as long as we both shall live and in the act of marrying is a covenant that is to last for a person's lifetime. And this covenant that, 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 these, that, that marriage is shared between a spouse is not just between you and your spouse, but your covenant is between you and your spouse and it is before the Lord. But they were unfaithful in marriage with the wife of their youth. We're told they're unfaithful with the wife of their youth. Oh, you know, she's gotten a little bigger. And, and you know, have you seen what kids do to the women's body? And so I kind of got rid of her, put her away, and I ran off with a younger woman. Uh, she's a daughter of a foreign god, but, no, you know, no big deal. I mean, we're going to be happy, right? I mean, that, that's what is happening with God's chosen people. I mean, she burnt my steak. She shrank my shirt. She, all we do is fight and we get at each other's necks. So I'm going to get rid of her and get a new one. And so God reminds them, hey, you made a promise, Israel. You made a covenant with them. And I was there. I was witness. I was over that wedding and I will not have it. What's happening in Israel, does it sound familiar today at all? Now, I'm not naive to, to think and to know that, that there, are, there are not people in here who've dealt with divorce. Um, being that half of marriages end in divorce, uh, it's actually higher right now among the baby boomer generation. Divorce rates are higher than, uh, than actually the millennial generation who's getting married now, but you probably give it long enough that millennials will screw it up too, right? Um, not that I, I would hope not. I'd hope that, that maybe there's a, a trend that is beginning to shift. But marriage... Half of all marriages, they end in divorce. And I know what it's like to grow up in a divorced home. I, I felt the burden of divorce. My parents separated when I was seven. My sister was uh, five, and they divorced when I was around nine or ten. The divorce was finalized. The church should be a refuge and must be a refuge to those who have gone through the realities of divorce. This is a safe place for those of you who have dealt with the realities of divorce. And, and I stress very much the and part, the church is also to be a place where we fight for our marriages. This is a place where we fight for our marriages because we made a covenant and we must hold one another accountable to that covenant. God says, hey, I'm a witness over marriage. Marriage is a covenant, and this covenant is binding. Look at, the, look at what, how God describes this 
covenant. Verse 15, did he not make them one as a portion of the Spirit in their union? And was the one God, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Well, I thought marriage was just, you know, two people getting their tango on and getting physical and that, that you know, and that, that's what marriage is, right? Two people becoming one, physically, sexually. But I want you to see this. Marriage is not just a physical binding. If you look at verse 15 again, it's much more than that. Did he not make them one? How? With a portion. Portion of it is part of very much physical, but the other portion is of the spirit in their union. Marriage is not just two people saying some words and having sex in bed, but marriage is a coming of one spiritually. And the Holy Spirit mends and mingles these souls together. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned, if you recall in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall, God did not say, Adam and Eve, where are you? Well, I thought two people sinned. Yeah, two people did sin. But God said, Adam, where are you? Because Adam is the man. Adam is responsible over the well-being of the family. And when God said Adam, he was essentially saying, the family of Adam, you unit two becoming one. Adam, where are you? There, there is not just a physical bonding in the act of marriage, but a spiritual mending that takes place. They are one physically and they are one spiritually in a sense. And so Mark chapter 10, Jesus speaking on marriage, echoes those words from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. No longer are they two, but they are one. The covenant is a covenant of oneness of a mingling, of a binding, spiritually and physically and emotionally. And this covenant is one of a special love and intimacy that does not exist outside of that relationship, right? And because they were breaking it off, that's why God says, Israel, you're unfaithful. Or you're faithless, rather. The covenant is a physical and a spiritual mending. And the burden of marriage in the scriptures is this. God has chosen to bring glory to himself in the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. Can, can I say how? Because I cannot emphasize how big this is. God has chosen to bring glory to himself with the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. So why is God here fighting for Judah's covenant and their faithfulness and going against their faithlessness? Because our earthly covenant mirrors God's covenant relationship with his chosen people. 
God's covenant is a specific and special love that is for his covenant people. And this idea of covenant continues in the New Testament, where in the Old Testament, you have the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works. and the New Testament, you have the covenant of grace, which is the fulfillment of all the covenants. Ephesians chapter two, verse, Ephesians chapter five, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself the savior. In Jesus, you and I, we have a new covenant. This covenant that you and I enjoy in Jesus is a covenant of grace. That means to, is to say that he, as a covenant, as the nature of a covenant is between a husband and a wife, he loves us. He knows us intimately. He gave himself up for us that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And you need to see this, his broken body and his, by his shed blood, we become one with Christ and we receive love through him. It's the covenant of his blood. That's why 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, guys, I want you to hear the language of this now biblically, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is the, the union of Christ. Us no longer just being of our own, but we were no longer our own. We were bought at a price. Jesus Christ purchased us through his blood and when he purchased us, he bought us into the new covenant. And as a husband has a special love for his bride, Jesus has a unique, special love and affection for his church. In fact, that's what, that's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage covenant is so important. Because marriage is a living picture of our union with Christ. Marriage is a declaration of the gospel. Marriage is a human reality, or rather human, our, our marriages as, is a human declaration of an eternal reality, of an eternal covenant. And while we have been unlovable and unfaithful and we have broken our covenant with God, Christ Jesus loves us, his bride, and there's no greater truth under heaven that we can be loved by Christ, that we love him because he first loved us. And love, listen then, is not merely put down into the place of an emotion. Love is not an emotion. Love is a binding covenant. You could, we could spend so much time on talking about covenants. I, we, we don't have time. We're already running out of time. But, but verse 16, there might be some variances depending on your translation of the way verse 16 is read. We don't have time to get into that variance right now, except that nothing changes in the reading and in the meaning of these verses. I'm, we read out of the ESV here, but it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says... The Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Or some translations say, uh, for I hate divorce, 
says the Lord. Now, even though the ESV and many other Bible translations do not say that, there is no question that God hates divorce. Why? Because he says his garment will be covered with violence. Let's just say we're not going to exegete that to its coarse meaning, but that's not a good thing, right? Garment is speaking of the male area, and that's going to be violently dealt with by God. That's intense, to say the least, right? God hates divorce. He does hate divorce. It's reiterated throughout Deuteronomy and Proverbs. Of course God hates divorce, right? Of course he hates divorce. If marriage is a covenant reflection of God's covenant with his people, then divorce stains the very institution God wants for us to put on display to a people who do not know him. Jesus said again in Matthew or in Mark chapter 10, the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two but one flesh. Verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And I want you to know this. Who does God primarily hold accountable for these divorces? The men. Because men, we are called to be the spiritual leaders, guides, and pastors of our wives and of our children. And while these men, they had no shame in divorce, so God shames them and defames his name, defames their names, cuts their tents off, and wreaks havoc upon their garment. I love what the Lord closes with here in our verse to the men. To the women too, but primarily to the men. Look at the end of verse 15. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 16 to the end. So guard yourselves in the spirit. He says it twice. Men, be on guard. Guard your sexuality, guard your eyes, guard the perverseness of our wicked minds sometimes when they go astray, guard your fantasies, guard your marriage, protect your family, feed them the word of God, lead them with the word of God, love them. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her for his husband loved his wife, so Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is a crucifixion that happens when men are truly called to love their wives, to lay their lives down for the sake of their wife, to lead their family, to die their own preferences. And men, if that is something you need to repent of, have that moment before God, where God will give you his grace and his mercy and through the power of the spirit, you can guard yourself again. If you are single, your singleness is right now a gift from God. Enjoy that gift, for it's better to be single than to be married to someone who is atrocious. And for those of you who struggle with maybe even same-sex attraction or different areas of your life, or you need to rethink all these things, let me just say, submit yourself, yourself to the word of God. Let God's word change the way that you think and change the way that I think. And God says to you, his church, 
with all your sin, with all your mistakes, with all your downfalls, I have loved you unconditionally. I've made a new covenant with you. This new covenant is not based on your works, but it is based upon my grace towards you. I have loved you, declares the Lord. And Judah and men today, you are called to unconditionally love your wives. This is the burden of marriage. In the midst of our failures, Christ Jesus forgives us of our sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. that you were so majestic and that you were so holy and that you were greatly to be praised and feared but that we can come before you right now with a voice of thunder with you shaking the earth, holding all things in your hand, who are you, God, that you would be mindful of us? But you are, you are mindful of marriage. For God, you are a witness of our marriages. God, our covenant is a lasting covenant. And you've made a covenant with us, your people. May we enjoy your church, the freedom of the grace that is given to us in the new covenant, the shedding of blood for the remission of our sins. And if you are not a Christian this morning, or if you've become a Christian by the grace of God during this time of worship, Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin, that Jesus rose again, and that in him there is fullness of life. May we be a church who submits our sexuality to you, who submits our marriages to you, and who does not cave at the pressures of our culture but lovingly, tactfully, not trying to fix people's outward sin, but trying to uproot the sin and give them the gospel. For God, your good gospel saves us. God, you have loved us with an unfailing love. And while we failed to love you, God, you never let us go if we are your children. May you save, may you draw. May we place our faith and our trust in you and surrender all our life, including our marriages, our families, our desires, and our wills. Believing, God, that you have a perfect plan for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.